From the Apple Blossom Studios of Rodale Institute Radio and Television at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it's time for another heirloom episode of chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. Everybody knows the value of heirloom tomatoes, but what about the kinds of apples that were grown a century or more ago? I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and on today's You Bet Your Garden, we'll speak with a gentleman on a mission to find, name, and preserve America's heritage apples. Plus, it's a classic compost bin, it's a potato tower, it's both. And of course, your telecommunicating question, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and devilishly devoted denunciations. So keep your eyes and or ears right here, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than you harvesting 60 pounds of potatoes without a shovel right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Lehigh Valley Health Network. In life, we have many kinds of partners, school bus partners, business partners, even gardening partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life, your health? Lehigh Valley Health Network, your health deserves a partner. Welcome to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later on the show, we'll talk to a gentleman who has preserved, saved, and named a thousand heritage apples. Uh, just incredible work this man does. We're also going to talk about how to make a compost bin that also grows potatoes for you. And of course, take your fabulous phone calls. But first, we got to give away a book. And our book this week goes for goes to Jennifer Ricatelli of Augusta, Georgia, who writes, love your show, wishing you a happy, healthy, and evil squirrel-free new year. Well, Jennifer, if the front of the card, which shows the Laurel and Hardy Museum, um, I didn't realize Oliver Hardy was born in the South, but he is, and there's a big festival there every year. The evil squirrel remark would have gotten you the book anyway. The book is 75 exciting vegetables for your garden. Not boring vegetables, exciting vegetables. It's really well written. The botanical illustrations are wonderful. Uh, Jennifer, I know you're going to enjoy this book. It's really well written. The botanical illustrations are beautiful and I hope you have a good time with it. All right, well, this is the last week that we will be accepting new postcards. After February 1st, that's the postmark on your postcard, uh, we will not accept new entries, but we'll continue giving books away, as I've said in the past, until I can see some of the floor in my home office. So once again, Send a postcard, and a postcard only, to You Bet Your Garden, Lehigh Valley Public Media, Bethlehem, PA, 18015. Has to be postmarked by Feb 1, and we'll probably give books away all through the end of February. All right, and now, on to your fabulous phone calls. Roger, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. How you doing today, Mike? I am just ducky, thank you for asking. Raj, how are you, sir? Wonderful, wonderful. And where is Roger wonderful? Uh, Weehawken, New Jersey. Weehawken, I believe that's a Native American 
term for area with many exits and jug handles? Is that <laughs> and a tube that goes under a river? Yeah. All right. What can we do? I always like the name of your town. What can we Thank do you. for Roger and Wee Hawkin? I just wanted to say I love your book on composting, and now I understand that I should uh, have not used shredded hardwood as a mulch. Uh, in my flower beds, but I already have it down, and uh, I've been shredding uh, leaves uh, in the backyard from the two pin oak trees. That I don't have uh, any large trees in my yard, but I get plenty of leaves from the neighbor's trees. Good. Um, and I was curious on what you suggest, uh, seeing that I already have the mulch, the shredded hardwood down. Should I just put a layer of compost on top in the spring or use my shredded leaves uh, now that I've already kind of ventured into this uh, world of putting the the wrong thing down is it dyed mulch is it black no. or no? no it's not the dyed mulch it's a uh, double double milled shredded hardwood uh like i used to grow up getting down in texas uh uh you know it, it was a big steamy pile when it was scooped up and put in the back of my pickup truck and uh it's a rich black a natural uh, black and brown it kind of turns gray after it sits out for a while and mm -hmm. i just kind of mix it up but it, it's what we would call arborist mulch, right? Just uh, yes, yes. You could definitely see big chunks of uh, shredded oak and things like that that are kind of knotty in there. Well, uh, they, uh, that is less disturbing, of course, than the mulches that are dyed colors that God never made. Right. Um, let's see. I mean, honestly, I mean, to get the best growth out of your plants and to avoid any kind of nuisance fungus, you know, right. I, I'm always going to recommend um, at least scraping away or hoeing away as much of the hard wood as you can. And then because you have shredded leaves right now, which of course haven't had time to become compost, I would, I would put some shredded leaves down on those beds uh, to serve the same purpose um, of preventing weeds and eventually breaking down. Also, the big one of the major advantages of shredded leaves over any kind of wood mulch is uh, earthworms are going to cultivate the soil underneath shredded leaves because that's their natural habitat. Earthworms live under the leaf litter in the forest and they love being under there they chew the leaves, they make new soil, they chew your lousy clay soil and poop out really good soil. And the best way to encourage tons of earthworms is to simply have nothing but shredded leaves on top of your soil. They will come and feed your plants, aerate your soil, improve your soil, not because they like you, but they, because they like being there. So. I would love to see a removal. And then what you can do is take that mulch. Again, if it's not dyed, just pile it up in a corner somewhere. And, okay. and it will compost down, especially if you add some uh, coffee grounds in there as yes. well. Yeah, I've got my compost pile. I've got a lot of coffee going in there. And I've got definitely some mulch has been uh, scraped up while I'm picking up the leaves. And, and if it goes into my compost pile... Is that a no-no uh, if I have some of that shredded hardwood, uh, non-dyed mulch in there? Um, it is not a complete no-no, but it won't break down as readily as the shredded leaves. Right. When that compost is ready to harvest, there's going to be a fair amount of wood in it. Now, if you want to go for the PhD class, you can screen your compost. Right. 
Um, I remember you talking about that. Now, if I'm shredding up basically, you know, uh, leftover clippings and things like that, do you want me to put that in the compost as well, or is that a no-no because the nitrogen-sucking wood, as you call it? It is. It will suck up nitrogen, and it can stop a compost pile cold if, gotcha. if there's too much of it. But what I do with branches and limbs and things like that is I just put those into a big pile and forget about them. And then in the years where I'm a little shy of compost at the end of the season, I go move that pile and I'll have wheelbarrows full of finished gotcha. compost at the R bottom. Shredded, shredded wood? Do you shred it? Do you put it through a little chipper or something nah. and just leave it in the do pile? I, okay, perfect. Do I look like a guy who works hard? No, no, no. I, I'm not one either. <laughs> yeah, I just pile it up and oh, great. everything composts on its own schedule. So it'll be a couple of years, but if you're patient, or again, if you just ignore it, maybe forget it, um, and then remember it's there, you'll be amazed at not only the amount, but the quality of compost, because it, it, this is one way the woods refertilize themselves, you know, when limbs fall off and, and trees fall over and everything like that, that becomes really good soil but again, a whole tree, it's going to take 10, 20 years. Right. Um, a couple of branches, smaller branches, uh, depending on the, the life in the forest that gets into them and starts breaking them down, uh, they could be invisible within a year or two. Right. Um, do you, uh, do you, can I ask another leaf question? Sure. Do you have time for another question? So if I uh, uh, would you recommend shredding the leaves, and you always talk about backstocking uh, some leaves for compost throughout the year. If I've got enough flower bed real estate, you suggest just go ahead and shred out all the leaves I can without obviously making four inches of shredded leaves on the flower bed. And then if I need more carbon for my compost bin, just, just rob it off of the uh, out of the flower beds and throw it into the bin. Well, the ideal thing to do at this time of year um, is cover your flower beds with two inches of shredded leaves. That's, okay. that's the maximum amount. After that, um, any mulch will start prevent rain from getting through. And, right. and you never need more than two inches. Um, okay. But yes, I mean, this is why people trash pick. This is why people go out and pick up SPB, stupid people bags, off, right. off the curbs when people are throwing away the greatest gift that nature has given them. I used to have one of those Subaru, uh, I forget if it was a legacy, and it was like right. a, a station wagon. And right. I would embarrass the heck out of my kids because <laughs> you know, I'd be taking them to band practice or baseball, or at that time of year, actually, it would be Girl Scouts and it would be basketball and the fall sports. And we'd be driving down a street in Emmaus, the biggest town close to us, and I'd see this line of these bags that the people had to buy special to throw away their leaves. And the kids, just like Ant-Man, they could actually will themselves to shrink down <laughs> in, Dad, no! Gold on the side of the road. Every, everybody knows you do this. No, my friends might be near. And I said, no, no, no. Now, that uh, those old legacies, they could hold like eight bags of leaves in that hatchback. So, 
That was, and if they're in plastic bags, you just store them with the the, the top open so they don't get uh, uh, rancid or start smelling. Or you know, I never encountered plastic bags. To be honest, uh, what I did encounter every once in a while was one of those big paper bags filled with shredded leaves. Right, right, yeah, right. I mean, that was they already like, did the work for you. That's like hitting the lottery. Once I um, the the four bags. Perfectly shredded, no trash in there, nothing else, just filled with shredded leaves. So I took the bags home, I emptied them into my compost piles and other kind of bins, and then I carefully refolded the bags, wrapped raffia around them, put a thank you note in there and left it outside the door. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, I'm lucky, uh, the, uh... I'm lucky they didn't call the cops. You know? I've, I've, really, I've really enjoyed the shredder uh, idea. You talked about using the electric one uh, and uh, I've taken it to the next level because I found that my uh, red-branded uh, leaf shredder wasn't shredding them as small as I liked. So I actually made a two-stage shredder. So now my uh, my leaf vac, I vacuum it up, and I have one of those hoses that normally just goes to a trash can. Right. But then I put it to another leaf shredder, the stand-up one that you usually have to pick up the leaves and drop in the top. Right. And uh, then that way it shreds them again, and I find that I get a nice, very tiny pulverized leaf. Uh, when it comes out into the trash bag, so it's uh, it's like a double shredding. So I want to ex- uh, I, nice. I want to explain to the people out there what you're talking about because most people are familiar with a leaf blower that you have a reverse setting and a collection bag you toss over your shoulder. But I, I remember the first um, blower vac electric that I had came with an optional bag, and what it was is instead of going into a little shoulder bag. It, it, runs, it runs through corrugated plastic pipe, and then you've got this uh, piece of fabric on the end where you can tie it tight over a trash can, and yep. you can fill the trash can. You don't have to stop when the bag is done. So if you're, if you're using that and then shredding them beyond that, you are on top of the world, man. You're going to have the <laughs> best mulch and fastest compost. Great. Thank you, sir. All um, right. Is that do it? You have time, uh, do you have time for a quick Japanese maple question? Uh, go ahead. Okay. So uh, I, I didn't get any color out of my Japanese maples this year. I was just curious whether you guys uh, went through this as well. I was wondering if we had an early freeze that might have made them go from basically their normal red right to crunchy, uh, crunchy leaves on the trees. Uh, or not, or if you guys went through that as well. Uh, have you yeah. had Have you had brilliant red in the past? Yes, yes, but it seems like some of my neighbors are going through this as well. I just didn't know if it was a sign of a disease or anything like that. No, that you've run across. it's not a disease. It could be cultural with all the rain we had. Um, gotcha. but, but sometimes these trees revert and just wind up with green leaves. Perfect. Sounds good. Yeah, well, it was in the fall, obviously, so it's right right now. I reach up and I grab it. It's all crunchy, you know, the, the leaves. But I was relieved when I saw my neighbors were going through the same thing. So I'm just hoping, like you said, it was a, uh, a seasonal thing, you know, from weather. So Yeah, not you. a sign of ill health. Oh, thank you very much, sir. And uh, I really enjoyed the show. I really enjoyed the book. Uh, I've shared your book uh, with, with a friend of mine who's really enjoying it now as well. And uh, especially the owner of the pin oak tree that I get all the leaves from. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Roger. Thanks for calling. Thank you for your time, Mike. You take care. Bye-bye. Are you still flat earth gardening? Are you watering your garden in the middle of the night? 
Are you cutting your lawn so low that dirt blows out the back of the mower? Well, stop doing all those things and make a call to me, Mike McGrath, at You Bet Your Garden at 833-727-9588, and I will learn you how to do it correctly. Call before midnight tonight so you don't forget. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind all of you that I will appear on Saturday and Sunday, January 25th and 26th at the Home and Garden Show at the Mohegan Sun Arena in Wilkesboro, PA. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with the man who's saving America's apples and more of your fabulous phone calls. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Rodale Institute. Since 1947, the Rodale Institute has been growing the organic movement through research, farmer training, and consumer education. Learn more about local events, workshops, and tours at rodaleinstitute.org. The Rodale Institute, because the future is organic. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up a little later in the show, we will discuss the building of the famous Lehigh compost bin, but specifically how to use that bin to grow potatoes above ground. That's right, fresh homegrown potatoes without digging. You're going to love it. We'll also take more of your fabulous phone calls, but now it's time to welcome our very special guest, Tom Brown, who is hardworking at preserving America's historic heritage apple varieties. Tom, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. I'm glad to be here and talk to you today. Oh, I am so looking forward to this conversation. Now... Um, this all started when a uh, when a listener, what is it, um, Kristen in Chattanooga, Tennessee, sent me a photo of you sitting at a table uh, with a sign behind you uh, that said something about heritage apples that you collect them, you save them, and 
you told me when we talked last week that that photo went on the internet and you became a kind of a viral sensation. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, in about six days, I got about a. It was posted on was posted on Reddit back in November, but then somewhere around January the first, it was posted on Facebook, and I got in six days like a thousand emails. Oh, you poor man. No. <laughs> so let's but, let's discuss this. Um, now, first, how did you get interested in heritage apples? Well, my wife and I have always loved farmers markets, and we were uh, going at most every Saturday to one in uh, at the Winston Salem Fairgrounds. That's in North Carolina near us. And anyway, and there was somebody there that sold apple trees, but in the late summer and early fall, they would uh, come there and, and display their apples, and they would have, you know, bags of different kinds of apples. And I was just fascinated by all, these were heritage apples, all the names and taste. And and I finally learned that there was a, a famous lost apple variety, the Harper Seedling from my area of Forsyth County. And I informally started looking for it, and I wasn't having any success. And I approached a local newspaper, and they did an article about my looking for it. And I got 12 or 14 responses. Back then, I think people responded a little bit better than newspapers. They weren't (laughs) so many cable channels and social media. I later found like five locations where trees used to be in the area, and I did approach a small newspaper in the uh, adjoining county, Yadkin County, because they had a nursery that actually sold the apple in the late 1800s, and that only generated two responses, but it was like casting the net one more time. I'm from Iredell County, which is the big city there, Statesville, and the Statesville newspaper, the Statesville Record and Landmark did a article about my looking for old apples and I continued to look in that county and uh, for old varieties and and in the county west of there which is Alexander County and everybody said well I should go to Wilkes County but they were saying that because they they grew apples in the on the border of Wilkes and Alexander County but what they didn't know was that especially in other areas of Wilkes County, it was the mother load of old apples. I eventually found 300 varieties just associated with that one county. Wow. Now, when you say you found these varieties, did you find the apples growing on the trees at the end of the season, or or what? Well, or these were actual trees. And did you collect the ripe apples? Yeah, yes, yes, you had to do that to... Uh, confirmed the identity, and then I would come back later and get cuttings for grafting. Right. That's one of the most important things I wanted to talk to you about, because apples are notorious uh, for not being what we call true from seed. Um, what's the old line? The sweet, the seed of the sweetest apple can grow the most bitter fruit? Y- yes, that, that's correct. They're cross-pollinated, so, so... So you would go back in the spring with a tree that you had identified as producing the correct fruit, you would take cuttings, then you would take them home and graft them to a rootstock? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, 
there's several large companies out in Oregon that sell grow apple rootstock and you know sell it for grafting purposes. And how many trees have you grafted and successfully propagated? How many different varieties? Well, I have found slightly more than a thousand oh, in 20 years. That's amazing. This is your full-time job, huh? Yes, more, more or less. But what really helped me initially was Wilkes County was only an hour away. And at that time, I, I didn't have an orchard or a nursery or no pets. Now we've, we've got a lot of dogs we love. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I was free to go up there, uh, you know, three days a week and just look for old apples. That's amazing. And, and the mother load, like, it's, like you said, was just an hour or so away. Well, and there's a reason for that. Uh, there were several elderly people that told me that their father or grandfather took pride in having apples different from the neighbors. Ah. And, and so you would visit one house, and they would have three apple trees. They would all be rare and all different from each other. And then maybe six houses down the road, there would be four apple trees, and they would all be rare and all different, but different from that other house. So, I mean, I was, <laughs> I was really spoiled. I was. Are these all eating apples? Do they all taste good, fresh? No, I mean, back then they used the apples for uh, hard cider and livestock feed and yes. for drying. Exactly and, uh, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you probably know uh, about this more than I do, uh, but the legend of Johnny Appleseed is totally true. Here's a guy who grew out trees, I believe, from seed because he didn't care what kind of apples he got and then sold those seedlings as he traveled around the country. And it really didn't matter uh, what the apples tasted like because, as you said, they would use them to make hard cider and to feed especially to pigs, right? Yes, and I think back in, in his era, there was homesteading. Mm -hmm. and, and when you got your, uh, like, 165 acres from the government you had to, to keep it, like, you had to do some improvements, like, do construct some buildings, and you also had to, like, plant some apple trees. Ah, that's and, amazing. And so they were buying, or some fruit trees, so they were buying that from him so they would, could plant it and help establish their, uh, you know, the rights to their property. You know, it just occurs to me that this explains the expression, as American as apple pie. So people would get these unnamed varieties, right, from Johnny and plant them. And then, as we both know, they would bear the same fruit every year. So did those homesteaders give them their names? Well, yeah, yeah. A lot of times it's named for a person or... If you, uh, like, had an apple tree and then you moved to another area 80 miles away and uh, took, you know, some cuttings and, you know, planted your own apple tree there and people liked it, uh, they might start calling it the Mike tree. Mm -hmm. and, and then other times they were, they were named for uh, characteristics of the apple, like uh, I know one that's shaped and looked like a strawberry and of course it's called a strawberry 
And then other times the apple trees were named for things near the tree, like there's a, a bee bench apple. A, a, a bee bench is a platform that they set multiple hives on, like a long, uh, couple of long boards. And I guess the apple tree grew beside that. Huh. And that would ensure the maximum number of apples, too, having, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 having the bees yeah, there. Yeah. So uh, the photo of you that started all of this, you have like a dozen, 20 apples in front of you with little name cards on them. Um, I presume you have tasted all of the apples or most of them. Yeah, yeah. on that display, it was you can't see the whole display, but it was like 70 apples. Whoa. Something like that. And so uh, some of them probably do taste good. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Yes. Yes, they do. So can do you remember a couple of favorites? Well, a, a couple that I really like is uh, one of them's a pumpkin sweet. It's not the pumpkin sweet that most people know, which is a big yellow apple. Th this one's a different one, and it's medium size and slightly pointed and totally covered with russet. I don't know if you've noticed some apples are russeted around the stem area, and it's uh, slightly sweet and ripe in August. That's one of my... Oh, that's very early for of, apples. Yeah, yes, that's one of my favorites. Well, my wife loves that one. Uh, another one that I call the Dry Creek Pippin, this one is actually not a heritage apple uh, because in looking for heritage apples, uh, once in a blue moon I'll go to somebody's house and they've got a wonderful seedling apple tree. And, you know, that it it's not a heritage and it's, you know, 20 years old or something like that, but it has wonderful apples and it deserves preserving. So that's one of those from western North Carolina. Out of the thousand is probably less than 10 that's in that category. Huh. But, but you you probably know that when it comes to things like tomatoes and eggplant and peppers, uh, the term heirloom refers to a variety that was once offered in the seed trade. And then seed companies stopped offering it, but the seed was saved by families that um, loved it so much. And you know, as you know, with, with homesteaders and people at the very beginning of the seed trade, you only bought seed of something like a tomato or a pumpkin or a pepper once, and then you saved the best seed from all of your harvests. And a lot of times, uh, the people would either forget the original name from the catalog, or they would rename it, as you say, after, after a relative or themselves. Um, were any of these heritage apples, did they appear in turn-of-the-century catalogs? Yes, but, uh, you know, you, you think of the early 1900s of being like a very, very long time, or say 1930 or tw tw 1920 as being a very long time ago. Say so that's 100 years ago. But e even back then, I, I mean, I have old... old uh, nursery catalogs that goes back to the, uh, I think I even have one that goes, that's in the real late 1700s. Whoa. But but I have, uh, you know, maybe a stack of 
18 inches high of these of these southern catalogs. Mm-hmm. And, and even at 19 and 20, the, the nurseries had slimmed their offerings down to, let's say, 20 varieties or something like that. Right. Whereas, like in 1850, they might have 70 varieties or something like that. That's exactly and, and, what happened with heirloom tomatoes. Same, same exact thing. So now uh, we talked a little bit last week, and did I understand correctly that you make more of these trees, you graft more of these trees than you need, and you sell them um, perhaps at a farmer's market? I sell them for local pickup and also ship the trees. I'd, ideally, I'd like to get, you know, five trees out there of each variety. And you have, I believe, 300 trees growing personally on your property? Actually, more more than that. There's counting uh, all varieties in the ground and st- still in containers. It's uh, maybe 800 varieties. You have the energy that I just so admire. I mean, I couldn't keep up. Uh, just the trees that are growing, do you at least get help pruning them in the spring? Because to get really good quality apples um, and prevent disease, apple trees need a, a pretty harsh pruning in the spring. Well, no, I do that myself. <laughs> well, the, the trees are not, they're you know, maybe 12 feet tall or something like that. They're not 30 feet tall. Right. Do you graft them deliberately onto a dwarfing rootstock? Well, they sell rootstocks uh, that give you different size trees, and the rootstocks have different disease resistance. And a lot of the people that want the old varieties want them on a somewhat bigger tree. So I usually graft them on... uh, it's called EMLA 111, and that uh-huh. gives you a tree like 75% the height of a seedling tree. But I also graft some on semi-dwarf and some on dwarfing rootstock. Well, Tom, I, uh, I've enjoyed this conversation immensely. Um, thank you for doing what you're doing. Thank you for your passion and your energy and I'd say keep up the good work, but you don't need me to tell you that, do you? Well, no. Well, thank you. And I want to compliment you as a host. It was like, it was like talking to somebody across the table and not like you were talking on the radio. I mean, you're such a, a gracious host in the way you speak and ask questions. You're, I have super high compliments for you. Well, thank you, Tom. That's a real honor coming from you. Uh, Tom Brown of North Carolina is preserving heritage apples. His website is applesearch.org. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and announce that I will brave the month of January to appear in tropical Wilkes-Barre, PA on Saturday and Sunday, January 25th and 26th at the Home and Garden Show at the Mohegan Sun Arena. But don't go looking for all the details at the events section of our website just yet, because we'll be right back with the plans for building a classic compost bin or a tomato tower. Your choice. They're the same plans, cats and kittens. I'm Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. 
Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Rodale Institute Radio at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up in just a little bit, we'll tell you how to build a compost bin and or a potato tower because they're the same exact design. And we're going to take more of your fabulous phone calls at 833-727-9588. But now it's time to welcome an old friend of mine who we asked to be on the show today, uh, because he is involved in a monarch tagging program. And he sent out an email about a week ago talking about the monarchs that have been found that were launched from the Pennsylvania area. Now, Ron, I'm always getting your last name wrong. Uh, what is it again? Uh, it's, it's pronounced Ryle. Right, but it's spelled like Rochelle. Yes, it looks like Rochelle. Yeah, so you've never had anybody read your name and speak to you correctly. That's true. Okay. Ron not, Ryle. Not in, yeah, not in 67 years anyway. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, <laughs> Ron, uh, you've been, how long have you been involved in Monarch Watch and tagging Monarch butterflies? I, we seem to go back a long time, man. Yeah, it, it is a long time. Uh, back to 2002. And so I've been, how did you get so into this? I mean, just the concept to me, and we've talked about this before, I can't imagine putting a tag on, on a butterfly. It almost sounds impossible. Yeah, somebody uh, sent me an email. They asked me if I'd ever heard of Monarch Watch. Uh, it's, in, uh, it's at the University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. I said no. They said, well, they have a tagging program. So um, I contacted them and got started. And uh, so... You, uh, how do you, how do, first of all, how do you, quote, capture them without injuring them? Well, Mike, I only tag the ones from the wild, so I do have to capture all of them. And I use a large uh, insect net. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very aggressive. Uh, the monarch butterfly is quite, um, quite strong, actually. The, uh, the black lines on the butterfly, they represent like a skeleton. Mm-hmm. So you can be aggressive. Once in a while, you'll knock one out. If you're not aggressive, you'll never catch them. <laughs> Isn't it easy to tag them when they're unconscious, though? <laughs> they wake right up. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway. Um, um, now, you collect all these butterflies um, in Pennsylvania, specifically in Pottstown? Yes, uh, I do it in Pottstown, Pennsylvania. That's my hometown. I grow 2,000 plants in a 50-foot by 50-foot area. You're crazy. And are half of them milkweed and half of them pollen and nectar plants for the adults? Um, I grow about 350 milkweeds for the monarch to lay eggs on. Right. And then uh, the main plant for the monarch uh, during migration is the Mexican sunflower. I love Tithonia. I mean, even if you're not doing it for the butterflies, it's a remarkable landscape plant. I can't remember having a plant that produced so many sequential flowers. Yeah, it just blooms and blooms and blooms. And it is very rich in the pollen and nectar that the adults need to migrate this impossible distance down to Mexico. Yeah, if you don't have Mexican sunflower, you're not going to be very successful 
uh, with the migration. Because they really got to load up, right? Yeah, and it goes all the way through uh, October into the first week of November. And Mexican sunflower will bloom that long. Oh, yeah. Um, mine really got tall this year. They Some of them got uh, 10 feet tall. Can you believe it? I think with all the rain we had, that if you had a properly installed garden, the plants got huge. I know a lot of people who had tomato failures, but my tomato plants were out of control. They were over my six-foot high tomato oh, cages. My. Yeah. So I had a lot of eight-footers and a couple ten-footers, and... Uh, uh, yeah, put it, up, like put it up where they can see them, right? Yeah. They go on the tallest flower because it's starting to get cool. Mm-hmm. They'll land on the very top of the Mexican sunflower. That's amazing. Now, right where the, what's the warmest? Now, so uh, your tags have specific codes on them. And, yeah, and they've, ch- they've changed the uh, tags now. What do you got they use, now? Um, they use uh, four letters and uh three numbers so Mm -hmm. they really um it's a longer code and but you everyone is unique so you know for a fact uh, how many of your butterflies that were tagged were then found down in mexico i've only had one found in mexico and was that this past year or no that's way back in 2004. okay it left here on uh 921 2003 recovered on 320 in 2004. And how far was the journey? Uh, 2,038 miles. That's amazing. Uh, but in the email you sent out, you had some success stories from other locals who were uh, involved. Yeah, there's been, uh, in my area, uh, right near me, there's been eight, eight other monarchs recovered in Mexico. Oh, that's which is which is pretty good. And what's your understanding? I hear different opinions on how the population is doing, uh, but um, my understanding is they've had a great rebound in the last couple of years. They have the uh, the number doubled for last year. And so that was the that were those are the ones that w- would be returning last summer. Right. So and uh, do you attribute do you attribute this to more people growing? plants specifically for their monarchs, like milkweed in the spring and um, tithonia in the, in the summer? Well, it definitely helps. But the, the population fluctuates like crazy. It's hard to explain. It went, went like from three hectares to six hectares, mm-hmm. which um, they're saying uh, a hectare is about 2.4 acres of right. monarchs. And um, they there's about at least 10 million monarchs per hectare. So they had somewhere between a uh, 30 million to 50 million increase two years ago. That's amazing. Well, that's crazy. Well, it's good. I mean, they're it's great. They're one it's of the canaries news. in the coal mine, right? Yeah, we a lot of people are are planting more milkweed. It's definitely got to be helping. Uh, if they can't find that host plant, they'll become extinct. Yes. And I, I think the, the fall plants, the pollen and nectar-rich sources, are just as important. Oh, it really helps. Uh, it's a long ways down there. All right. Yeah, they say the western population is hurting over, over around California. Mm-hmm. But out east, we're doing fabulous, uh, including this year. I had a record migration uh, of about 1,500 monarchs over a 12-day span. 
Man, that's incredible. That's you counting adults flying through uh, your your land. Through my backyard. And I, I live in town, in the borough, in the city. So that's really, uh, it's really, really good. And two of my friends had the same results. That's amazing. Well, and, congratulations. And, and if people want to learn more about the tagging program, is it Monarch Watch? Monarchwatch.org. Okay. All right, Ron. Uh, thanks for talking to us today. And keep up the good work, man. I'm really proud of you. Thanks, Mike. Have a great time. You too. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. All right, kids. It's what you've been waiting for, the question of the week. Growing potatoes above ground in a Lehigh bin. Bruce in Toronto writes, I'm planning on making a Lehigh bin for my potatoes next year, but I can find no reference as to how large the gap should be between the slats. I want enough room for the potato plants to be able to come out, but I don't want to be losing soil because the gaps are too large. Could you please make a suggestion? Absolutely, Bruce. First, let's explain how a classic Lehigh bin is constructed. You get enough slats of four-foot-long, rot-resistant lumber to make a bin that's four feet high. Winds up being four by four by four. But you don't build solid walls. Instead, you stack each piece of lumber so that you have a slat, then an opening the same size as the slat, then another piece of lumber, then another opening, then another slat, on and on until you reach four feet high. Although there's no harm in going higher. Now, I called master craftsman and all-around good guy Fred Matlack to help me better communicate the look of this structure. And he replied that the design is the same as the classic, quote, log cabin corner lap. Turns out that way back then, log cabins were built by laying logs in this same manner with openings. Then the gaps between the logs were packed with wood chips and clay, and then they were plastered over. Fred continues, for someone with even rudimentary carpentry skills, I recommend they use two-by-fours for the lumber. Just be aware that two-by-four is an archaic and technically inaccurate term that refers to the initial cut of the lumber, which was two inches by four inches. But the wood then shrank during the drying process, and the result was inconsistent. So lumber yards started establishing a new standard working the dry wood to make it a consistent inch and a half by three and a half, although everybody still calls them two-by-fours. Now, when four-foot-long, quote, two-by-fours are stacked to make the classic Lehigh bin, the openings between the slats will be three and a half inches, which is just about the width of the four fingers on one hand. Now, you can use dirt, cheap, untreated pine for the lumber, which should last for several seasons. A few more if you don't mind the bottom board showing some signs of decay. And if you're only using the bin to grow potatoes and not make compost, you can fold it up and store it inside in the off-season for an even longer life. Now, cedar is a more expensive wood, but it will last longer, again, especially if it isn't left outside over the winter. Now, the finishing touch involves drilling matching holes on all four corners and inserting a metal rod down the entire length to hold the bin together. You can use a fiberglass rod if rust is an issue. Thank you, Fred. 
Fred Matlack is an amazingly talented carpenter who built my office furniture using boards from an old barn, built our laundry room cabinets out of old packing crates, and built all the structures for Organic Gardening's award-winning major exhibits at the Philadelphia Flower Show in the 90s. He worked for American Woodworker magazine for many years, building the finished versions of the design featured in their articles, and did the same for the Build It features in Organic Gardening when I was the editor-in-chief. He is also an excellent singer and can disarm a nuclear device using three paper clips and a stick of juicy fruit gum. Now, back to Bruce in Toronto. I don't believe the spacing between the slats is going to be an issue. Remember, these bins, which were designed by J.I. Rodale, the man who coined the term organic gardening, and engineers at Lehigh University, were designed for the making of compost. And I can personally assure you that they hold their contents well. I've used many Lehigh bins over the years. If a little dirt or compost does spill out, just scoop it up and add it back to the top. Now, to make a proper potato bin, Shovel a mix of clean soil and compost into the empty bin until it's about a third full. Then place one seed potato in the center of each quadrant, north, south, east, and west, close to the outside with the biggest eye on the potato facing out. Then fill the bin up another third of the way and repeat. When you get close to the top, place a third run of seed potatoes on each quadrant and one right in the middle, in the center, for good luck. Be sure you bury them with enough soil that the developing crop won't be exposed to sunlight. The green leaves that emerge through the sides and top should get as much sun as possible. But new potatoes should never be exposed to the sun or they'll turn green, a sign the toxins have developed. Water the bin deeply if you go a week without an inch of rain. At the end of the season, you just lift the bin straight up and go treasure hunting. If the soil was loose enough, you should get around five pounds of potatoes for every seed potato you planted. One final word of advice. Don't, quote, coin your seed potatoes. Cutting seed potatoes into pieces is something commercial farmers pretty much have to do to keep their expenses down. But it greatly increases the risk of rot especially if your spring is cool and wet. Well, that sure was an unusually specific look at how to build a compost bin and or a potato tower, now wasn't it? Luckily for you, you can read the information over at your leisure or your leisure because the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. Just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you always find the greatest, 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 latest, and best, and all the old ones at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to eat my apples if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 833-727-9588 or send us your email, you're tired, you're poor your wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at ybyg at wlvt.org. Please include your location. Otherwise, we wouldn't have known that Bruce was in Toronto. 
you'll find all of our contact information, plus answers to your garden questions, audio of this show, video of this show, audio and video of old shows, and links to our internationally renowned podcast at YouBetYourGarden.org. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show, an hour-long public radio show and podcast, all produced and delivered to you weekly by Rodale Institute Television and Radio in association with Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath, formerly known professionally as the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, was created when Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd accidentally crossed the streams. Ken Queter plays our theme song. Our chief content officer is Yoni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airwaves is Christine Dempsey. Our engineer is always cheerful, Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Our peerless princess of profound production is Tavia Minnick. Our website wonder is Nicole Harrell. Our audio editor is the lovely Jonas Bowen. Our video editor is judicious Jake Boyer. Our harassed and harried director is Javier Diaz. Eric is running the camera this week. Zach the Tack Wisniewski. Actually, I haven't even seen him today. Is he around here someplace? Our beloved and beleaguered CEO, Tim Fallon, who is not our executive producer, is late for a meeting and continues to deny what happened at the annual Christmas party. Film at 11. I'm your host, Mike McGrath, and I'll belly dance my way back to you again next week. Hey, boy. Hey, boy. Where's the ball? Where's the ball? <gasps> Ready? Go get it, boy. That's a good boy. Drop it. Drop it. Good boy. Good boy. Loyal partners. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Lehigh Valley Health Network. Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. Outside of deer and fig trees, coffee grounds and ashes from a hardwood stove are a perennially popular topic that people ponder. I'm Mike McGrath, and on the next thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden, we'll reveal how you can use these substances wisely and unwisely in your potager. Plus your fabulous phone calls. That's on the next You Bet Your Garden. Uh -huh.